Neil Anderson once said, the more you reaffirm who you are in Christ, the more your behavior will begin to reflect your true identity. In other words, the more we identify ourselves with Christ, the more our lives will look like his. Of course, Jesus defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated the enemy. He defeated every power of darkness and every evil plan that would ever be leveled against him. Yet when you look at everything that he went through to claim that victory, it wasn't like it came without a cost. Right? Jesus also suffered. He was tortured. He died. He was buried in a tomb. Of course, the good news is that's not the end of the story because he overcame all of that. He rose from the dead. He claimed victory over hell and the grave and proved it by walking out of that tomb. But the fact remains. Listen, when you watch a prize fight, the winner still gets hit. Sometimes he gets knocked down. The difference between the winner and loser is the winner gets back up and finishes the fight. Apostle Paul said, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. The reason he could say that about himself and about you and me is because if we've been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, Romans 6, 5. That's who we are in Christ. Yes, we share in Christ's sufferings, but we also walk in Christ's victory. Victory over sin and death and hell and every plan the enemy has ever leveled against us because we're no longer subject to this world or the ways of this world or the power of this world. No, as believers and followers of Christ, we're subject to Christ and the ways of Christ, which means we walk in the power of Christ. Okay, Jesus got hit, but he never lost he got knocked down, but he never gave up. He is the undisputed, undefeated King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Revelation, even at the end of this age, when the enemy throws everything he's got at God and at us, we win because he won. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to get hit in the process. Maybe even knocked down, but by the power of Christ in us, you can get right back up and finish the fight. You, you might get banged up and bruised a bit along the way, but not defeated because the power of Christ in us is greater than every other power in this world. You understand, there isn't a lack of power in the church today. There's a lack of understanding about the power we have which is a bigger problem than you may realize, not only for us, but for the rest of the world, because the church is the only entity on earth who actually has the power to overcome what the enemy is doing to this world, as we're going to see in our story today. And yet all too often, the church inexplicably fails to recognize that. It's like we don't understand what we're capable of. We say we believe what his word says about us, but we go silent when we get hit, like we're, we're too stunned by getting hit by this world to react. Sometimes we stay down when we get knocked down. Why? Why don't we use the power we have to stand up to the evil in this world that's trying to drag people to hell right in front of us? It's like we don't understand what we're capable of. Because what he's done for us and to us makes us uniquely equipped with power to actually change things. 
Power to keep going when we get hit. Power to get up when we get knocked down. Power to offer healing to this broken world and the truth to overcome it. It's as if we don't understand what we're capable of or whose image it is that we bear, namely a God who's never been defeated. That's who we represent. And as a result, we inevitably, we, we neglect the power available to us, the power that is in fact within us to affect real change. And so instead, in, in lieu of relying on the power of God within us to affect change in the world, instead we rely on the hope that by imposing our conservative moral values on the systems of this world, we will then be able, through those systems, to bring about the changes that are needed in this world. So we, we tend to focus on things like government and politics and social policies and education and the use of technology and media, even entertainment, to try and influence the moral compass of our culture, which is exactly, by the way, what religious people have been doing as long as there's been religion. And listen, it's not that Christians shouldn't be involved in government and politics and social policies and education and technology, media, entertainment. Of course, we should be involved in all of that as long as we understand that none of that can ultimately provide the answer for what is actually wrong with this world. Because when you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven, what you find is that when people needed healing, God healed them through the church. When families needed provision for their daily needs, God provided for them through the church. When the disenfranchised needed to be cared for, God cared for them through the church. When leaders needed guidance, God gave them guidance through the church. When the lost needed to be found, God rescued them through the church. When the broken needed mending, God repaired them through the church. When the lonely needed relationship, God embraced them through the church. And when the unlovable needed friendship, God loved them through the church. When the confused needed answers, God answered them through the church. And when the world needed a savior, God revealed Jesus and continues to reveal him through the church. You understand every single thing this world desperately needs, God is offering through the church. That's why the consequence of 12 men of average upbringing and experience planning the church by spreading the message of the gospel like wildfire across the ancient world resulted in a third of the world's entire population professing faith in Christ today, 2,000 years after the death of Jesus. Because as maligned and persecuted as the early church was, they understood and embraced who they were and what God had done in them. And as a result, the culture around them, indeed the world, was forever changed by the Spirit of God working through the church. But you know what? They weren't running the government. They didn't have control of a political party. They weren't in charge of the educational system of the day and they were not widely accepted in popular culture. They simply understood their identity in Christ and what he had put inside of them. And as a result, the church was an unstoppable force in this world. Yet today, it seems like when people look to the church for answers and for help and for guidance and for healing and for rescue and for power, real power, what they're increasingly finding is a church that's looking to the systems of this world to provide all of that for them, to governments and social movements and popular culture. And then we wonder why people aren't as interested in our message today as they used to be. Well, it's because they don't see the power of that message at work in our lives. If all we're offering the world is a more morally conservative version of what they already have, then who cares? Why bother? No, what people are looking for today 
It's what people have always been looking for because although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. What people needed 2,000 years ago is exactly what they need today. And it's something that cannot be found in this world outside of the church. When I say the church, I'm referring to you, right? Because if you are indeed a believer and follower of Christ, then you have something that cannot be found anywhere else. But if you don't recognize, let alone exercise the power that God has put inside of you, then how will we, the church, ever affect real change, lasting change in this world? Okay, and I say this to you all the time, but listen, we talk about the church isn't the building, it's the people. That's true, but it's more than that. It's the people when we're together. We're not a dismembered body. We're not the dismembered body of Christ with fingers and toes and elbows and knees all spread out, not connected, like individual pieces of a body. No, we are connected. We are, we are a body, not a dismembered body. That's very important because that's how we realize and actualize the power of God working in us. We're going to talk about that. Okay, what this world is desperately in need of and searching for today, it can only be found in you, in the church. It's Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, that resides inside of you. And I'm telling you, if we spent half of the energy and effort as we spend on politics and social movements and cultural issues, if we spent half of that energy and effort simply telling people about Jesus and then actually showing them what he's doing in our lives, which is how we stand up, by the way, to the enemy and his plans for this world, as we're going to see in this story, then we wouldn't have to try and influence governments and political parties and cultural movements because the church would be such an unstoppable force in this world. It would spread like wildfire, regardless of its relationship to the those governments and political parties and cultural movements. So look, we, I'm just telling you, we're far better off, if we had to choose, we're far better off being uninformed about politics and cultural issues and current events than we are being uninformed about the gospel and the power it provides within us. You know why? Because this world doesn't need more politics, it needs more Jesus. This world doesn't need a more woke culture. It needs more Jesus. And listen, this world doesn't need more religion either. It needs more Jesus. Yet the only place that he can be found in this world is in the church, in you and in me. So why are most of us more involved with what's going on in the world than we are with what's going on in the church? I mean, that's really the question we need to answer today. Why are most of us more involved with what's going on in the world than we are with what's going on in the church? I'm convinced it's because we don't understand what we're capable of. If we did, our lives would completely revolve around the church and our involvement in it just like it did for the believers in the New Testament. See, our problem today isn't that we don't have the same power working in us. We just rarely tap into it because we don't understand what we're capable of. Listen, that's why this part of the story is so important. So let's turn there and read it together as we pick the story back up where we left off last time. Romans chapter 12. Uh, we'll start with the first six verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. 
His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. And this chapter is made up of three uh, scenes, right? The, the woman, the dragon, and the male child, with the first and third scenes acting as bookends to the story. And so while the third scene is really a continuation of or an expansion of the first scene that we just read, the second scene, which we'll get to, explains Satan's violent opposition to the church at the end of this age. And so altogether, this chapter paints a picture of why there will be increasing opposition and hostility that the church is going to face in the last days that dominates so much of this book. And to be sure, uh, listen, this chapter is the centerpiece. It's the theological heart of the entire book of Revelation. And we know from the Gospels, uh, God through Christ, of course, has already engaged Satan in the ultimate holy war where by way of the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan and the forces of evil have already been defeated. And yet for a time, he's permitted to pursue the people of God, which brings about no small amount of suffering in the final days. And yet as tempting as it is, to try and frame these events or understand them in our modern context based on modern events or current circumstances, we really need to be careful not to lose sight of the events and circumstances that were happening at the time these stories were written. In other words, we can't ignore the context uh, that framed these stories when John recorded them, right, in the first century. A great example, just a few centuries ago in the Middle Ages, the Crusades were raging. And so was the Pope's personal war against a group of Christians who preceded the reformers. And so, of course, what dominated the hearts and minds of believers at the time were those events and circumstances. And so naturally, they interpreted Revelation, and particularly chapter 12, in light of those events and circumstances. And as a result, the prevailing belief at the time was that the sun in the story represented the Christian world, while the moon represented the Muslim world. And the war with the saints, which we'll see in verse 7, represented the Pope's personal attacks on the Weldentians. It was a, a group of Christians. They were actually traveling lay preachers who were advocating for reform in the church. And listen, at the time, this was the prevailing thought for the church concerning Revelation 12. They were convinced that their current events and circumstances formed the backdrop for what Revelation 12 was all about. Of course, nobody believes that today because, of course, those days, along with the Crusades and the Pope's assault on the Reformers, are long gone. So, listen, we need to be really careful about inserting our own current events and circumstances into these stories without considering the ancient context they were written in. And so with that in mind, chapter 12 marks a major division in the book of Revelation. It's after the plagues that we've already witnessed and yet before the seven last plagues of chapter 16 where the wrath of God is finished. It's the age-old conflict between God and Satan that Jesus warned his followers about in John 15, 20. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And it now reaches a fever pitch as Satan, cast down from heaven, knowing his time is short, as we'll see, turns his rage against the faithful followers of Christ who are left on the earth. And make no mistake, the outcome is certain, but that doesn't mean the church won't get hit, even knocked down, 
in the process. The question is, will whoever's left get back up and finish what we started when we answered his call to begin with? Because the fight that the enemy is bringing to the church, I'm just telling you, is going to be anything unlike anything else this world has ever known. Okay, and so look, the woman here represents Israel or the faithful remnant of Israel, which was a common theme in Jewish tradition and Jewish writings at the time this was written, both biblical and non-biblical. Some examples, Isaiah 54, 1, uh, Micah 4, 9, Galatians 4, 26, also Estrus 10, 7, that's the ancient Greek Septuagint version of Ezra, uh, the second century BC, uh, BC book of Tobias 13, 9, also the first century AD book, second Baruch 3, 1 through 3, uh, non-canonical, non-biblical books, all attest to the same thing. So the woman is the faithful remnant of Israel, along with believers who have come to Christ during this time. The moon beneath her feet represents dominion, and the crown of 12 stars depicts royalty, and as well, uh, the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, depict the period of great tribulation as childbirth and go on to describe Israel bearing new life in the time of the resurrection and the day of God's wrath in which he will slay the serpent. And then as we'll see, John makes it clear in verse nine that the dragon is Satan. And again, we see all throughout biblical texts like the Psalms and Daniel, also non-biblical texts like the ancient Ugaritic cuneiforms that Satan is represented as having seven heads or several heads and 10 horns that represent his false claims of authority and power over the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he prepares himself before Israel to devour the child, the Messiah, which by the way, started with King Herod back in Matthew 2 and continues throughout Jesus's life and ministry on earth with all of its dangers and temptations and of course culminates at the crucifixion. And yet as we know, Jesus conquered death and hell and the grave and then undefeated by the enemy, as John says here in our story, he was caught up to God and to his throne. And so the enemy declares war which leads to the second half of the Great Tribulation. Three and a half years, the second half of Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 9.27. And so all of this is context, right, for the rest of the story, which, by the way, is going to take us two Sundays to cover the rest of this chapter. So we're going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter now, the last two scenes in the story, and then we're going to go back and spend the rest of our time today uh, focused on verse 11. Actually, that'll carry us through next Sunday as well for the second half of this message. So let's finish the story for today then. Verse 7, we'll read all the way through to the end of chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So this is an all-out attempt on the part of Satan, first of all, to regain his position in the presence of God. So to be clear, this is not a reference back to the original expulsion of Satan from heaven. We know that Satan still, after that original event, still had access to heaven uh, later, which we see in Job 1 and 2, also uh, Zechariah 3. And so this is the cosmic prelude, if you will, to the final consummation where Satan declares war in heaven and then on earth, where he's once again defeated by God's army, led by Michael, the guardian of Israel, according to Daniel 12.1, who, uh, according to the apocryphal book, 1 Enoch chapter 90, will deliver Israel in the last days of the tribulation. So in response... Satan launches one last assault on the church. Knowing his time is short, he turns his anger on the faithful remnant of believers on earth where he will ultimately be overcome yet again by faithful believers. And yet, as the end for Satan draws near, his hostility toward the church increases with great intensity. In other words, the church is going to get hit, maybe even knocked down. And by the way, it's not just physical persecution that's in play here. As the Old Testament texts in their original language describe this story as much of a courtroom scene as they do a physical war. You see, Satan is accusing the saints of unfaithfulness. He's saying, hey God, listen, these people of yours don't deserve your salvation or your grace or your blessings. Just, just read passages like Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, where courtroom scenes are depicted with Satan accusing the saints before God. But he's done it many times. We see the same thing in the ancient Jewish writings of the Midrash, where Satan levels legal claims against God's people according to God's law. Right? It says the penalty of our sin necessitates a judgment of spiritual death, not a reward of salvation. Here's the thing. He's right. The devil's right. We don't deserve salvation. Our sin does demand payment, judgment, retribution, wrath. He's using God's law against us. Yet the one thing that Satan refuses to recognize to factor into the equation is the very reason we can claim victory over the enemy despite our sin. It's the blood of the Lamb. According to verse 11, the believers have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Listen, despite our sin, our failure to fulfill God's law, our inability to earn our salvation, we are saved because of the blood of the Lamb who was slain on our behalf to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Do you realize you've been claimed by Christ Right, who did what the law could not do, which means now despite the enemy's accusations, he has no claim over your life. And again, to be clear, the claim that Jesus has made of your life 
It is a legal claim. The apostle Paul wrote, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled who walk not according to the flesh. He's talking about in us, but according to the spirit, Romans 8, 2 through 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus paid for something you never could. Your sin and the price of death that must be paid for that sin, he paid it for you, and in doing so, he made a legal claim on your life. And it wasn't because of what you own or what you earn or what you have to offer him. No, he made that claim on your life solely because he loves you which means all of the indebtedness of your sin has been paid in full. Do you really understand what that means? You no longer have to pay those debts. So why are so many Christians still trying to pay for something that's already been paid for? Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, if, if, if your life truly abides in Christ, then every sin you have ever committed has been paid for. What about the sins I'm struggling with right now? Paid for. And guess what? Every sin you're ever going to commit, paid for. God never wanted you to have to bear the weight and effects of sin in this world. And yet there are Christians today still trying to bear the weight of that sin in their own lives. As sons and daughters, we were chosen before the foundations of the earth to become fellow heirs with Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 17, to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, according to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9. We were never meant to carry the weight of sin in this world, and yet it's, it's a weight that so many people, I'm talking about Christians, refuse to let go of, so they carry it around in their lives every day. Listen to me, God never wanted you to carry that. He made a legal claim on your life so you wouldn't have to. And yet because mankind rejected him all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the burden of sin that was thrust upon this world, which is now a place full of broken, spiritually dead people, because of sin, the Apostle John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This world is a broken place full of spiritually dead people, but Jesus came to change that, which is why he said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. And so now, within this world, this place full of spiritually dead people, you have this thing called the church, a family made up of people who were once spiritually dead but are now spiritually alive in Christ. And if you keep reading that passage in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He bore our sins so that we no longer have to. 
which is why he was able to say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. He bore our sins so that we no longer have to. So that you no longer have to. God never wanted you to carry the burden of sin. And now because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to, no matter what accusations the enemy ever makes against you. So I'm asking why, Christian, are you still bearing that burden when it's not yours to carry? Why do you allow your own brokenness to make you feel worthless to the point that you believe you cannot go where he's called you to go in this life or to do what he's called you to do? You understand, I'm not talking about pretending that our sin doesn't matter, by the way. Of course it does. Our, uh, Jesus died for our sins, but he also lived to show us what life looks like without sin as an example for us to live by. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4. It creates distance between us and God, according to Isaiah 59. And so, yes, absolutely, we should feel great conviction when we sin and repent every single time. But listen, in that moment, the closeness of our relationship to him is fully restored, not because of the inherent value in our repentance, but because of the inherent value in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross where he made a claim on your life, canceling out the debt of every single sin in your life forever so why do you still carry that weight well I'll tell you why it's pride because we give more weight to our own sin than we do to his sacrifice that paid for our sin it's us saying Jesus you're not enough It's nothing more than pride. Peter points it out. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Look at what he ties this issue of pride to. He says, casting all your anxieties on him. Humble yourself so you can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. We're commanded to cast all of our anxieties, all of our cares, all of our burdens on him, the weight of every sin on him. And it's not a suggestion, it's a command of God, and anything short of that, according to Peter, is nothing more than pride. So I'm just telling you, if you're holding on to the weight of sin in your life today, especially if it's keeping you from going where God has called you to go in your life, Peter says, humble yourself, first of all, under the mighty hand of God, the hand of the only one who can actually do something about it. Then cast those burdens on him because they're not yours to carry. Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So repent of your sin. Cast all of that weight upon the one who paid for that sin and then get on with the calling he's placed in your life which is in fact one of the ways that we exercise power over the enemy to the point that he's continually defeated in our lives by walking in the freedom of salvation that is afforded to us by the blood of the lamb shed on our behalf. This is the power we wield. It's how we carry out our calling in spite of our brokenness and unworthiness apart from Christ. Because now because of his blood shed for us, we're no longer apart from Christ. We are now a part of Christ. It's our superpower, our truth claim that shuts the mouth of the accuser and opens the ears of the unbeliever because we now have something to offer them that cannot be found any place outside of the church. 
Forgiveness for our sins that cannot be earned no matter how much good we may ever perform in this life. It's the unthinkable, undeserving, irrevocable gift of the blood of Jesus that defeats the enemy and absolves the hopeless sinner from an otherwise hopeless eternity. Listen, this this is how we snatch lost people from the fires of hell that await them, as Jude says in Jude 1.23. It's not our conservative morality. It's not our good behavior or our religious pedigree. No, it's the blood of the Lamb who was slain for us that we testify to others about boldly, even in the face of persecution and even death. This is what defeats the enemy in our lives because he cannot stand up to the truth of what Jesus has done for us and that we testified to no matter what comes our way, as we're going to see next week as we continue this sermon. I love this quote. It's so powerful. R.C. Sproul once said, Christians have nothing to be smug about. We're not righteous people trying to correct the unrighteous. As one preacher said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The chief difference between the believer and the unbeliever is forgiveness. Do you understand? There isn't a lack of power in the church today. There's a lack of understanding about the power we have which is a bigger problem than most of us probably realize because we're more focused on what's going on in this world than we are with what's going on in the church. It's like we don't understand what we're capable of or whose image it is that we bear a God who's never been defeated. And so every time we get hit or knocked down by this world or more specifically by the enemy of this world, we have a tendency to turn to the ways of this world to address our hurt or our struggle alone instead of turning to the source of the only real power we have, Jesus Christ working through the church. You understand every depiction that we have of the church in these final days where she's operating in supernatural power, the church is together because that's where our power lies as a body, not a dismembered body, a functioning, healthy body. That's why the enemy accuses them day and night before our God. It's why they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's why the church was taken into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished together. By the way, speaking of context, To the Jewish people, the wilderness was a symbol of divine provision and intimate fellowship with God. It was in the wilderness that God rained down bread from heaven in Exodus 16 and nourished his people for 40 years. It was of Israel that God said, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, Hosea 2.14. You understand, for John's readers, the wilderness was not, he wasn't painting a picture of some kind of desert wasteland inhabited by their enemies. No, it was a place of spiritual refuge inhabited by each other as they gathered together and they were protected by the power of God against the enemy God was saying to these people that because of the blood of the lamb you're now my people and in your most difficult hour when you get hit even when you get knocked down I will gather you together and it is there together that you will be strengthened nourished provided for that you may conquer the enemy even as I have already defeated him so listen When's the last time when facing something really big in your life, you called together your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, as your first response to pray God's word and his promises over your life? Because I'm telling you, that's where your prayer is most powerful. 
When's the last time when you had something significant to give, your first thought was the church because that's where your giving is multiplied to its greatest effect? When's the last time you testified before the church to the work of Christ in your life because that's where your testimony changes people's lives? When's the last time you thought about the church and your part in it more than you thought about this world and your part in it? Because I'm telling you, that's where your power comes from. The Spirit of Christ at work in His people, the church working together as a body, like a body's supposed to. The church is where our power is. The church is where we can give the most, accomplish the most, and overcome the most. The church is the means through which God reaches this world and overcomes the enemy in it, as we'll see next week. Listen, you cannot experience the fullness of God's power available to you in this life apart from the church. That's a fact. You can experience power as a child of God all alone on your own. You can, but you will never experience the fullness of power that God makes available to you as a child of God in this life apart from the church. You cannot, right? Even the greatest prize fighters in history have a corner full of people behind them, encouraging them, coaching them, guiding them, providing for them, helping them all along the way. It's out of that corner. That's where the power comes from. Listen, you may get hit in this life. You may even get knocked down. But with the Spirit of God inside of you and the church in your corner, I'm telling you, no matter how hard you get hit, no matter how many times you might get knocked down, you can get back up, you can stay in the fight, and you can overcome the enemy in your life because we serve a God who is undefeated and has already secured your victory by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray.